Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So lately, and by lately I mean in the last 48 hours, I've kind of realized that I was not thinking correctly about the shape of UFOs. And what I mean by that is that Navy pilots have reported seeing these Tic Tac-shaped UFOs. And I haven't bought Tic Tacs for like 10 years, and I think I forgot what they looked like. So (laughs) it only, like, really, I mean, sometime, I think yesterday afternoon, it suddenly occurred to me what Tic Tacs really do look like. And, And that's a point that's kind of important in a larger way in terms of today's show. Because when we think about UFOs, when we think about space aliens, we use the visual and mental and cognitive and linguistic vocabularies that we have not things that we don't have because we don't know how to think that way. So how to think about space aliens, you are about to find out. about really complex questions. It's just amazing how good Sting is at just boiling them right down for you. But, you know, he is kind of exploring something that we're going to explore on the show today, which is the concept of an alien. An alien is obviously, both in Sting's terms and in our terms, somebody really different. Something really very, very different. We're going to be talking about space aliens today, not about Sting. Sorry about that. Uh, And before we introduce our guests, let me just sort of introduce one concept, which may turn out to be kind of a through line, or not. Uh, But I'm going to make reference to uh, what I call the Pudlin Principle. It's named after my late friend, David Pudlin. David Pudlin was uh, my friend and a very, very smart and very, very funny person who knew way too much about chili dogs. Like, he had reams of notes about them. At one point, he entrusted me (laughs) with a briefcase full of his thoughts about chili dogs, in case anything happened to him, I guess. And I I said, why is this? Why do you know too much about chili dogs? And he said, I'm from New Britain, Connecticut. He said, if I were from Florence, I'd know a lot about fountains. So that's kind of the puddling principle. And if you apply it to, say, Thomas Aquinas. So Thomas Aquinas, you know, he's just chilling out in 13th century or Vieto or Paris or wherever, and he looks up at the sky and he sees something moving around, kind of in a funny way. Well, what is it probably? What's probably, I mean, Aquinas is going to say, um, you know, I, I, I want to say that's, that's an angel. 
I do an uncanny Thomas Aquinas impersonation. Uh, I want to say that's an angel because flying machine, he just doesn't have any vocabulary for that. He doesn't even have a vocabulary really for machine, never mind flying machine, uh, uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon. I mean, no, he's going to say it's an angel because that's his chili dog, right? He can, he, he knows what an angel, he kind of knows what an angel is. And, and so when we talk about aliens— and, and perhaps also the craft in which they might conceivably arrive, we wind up essentially using our own default vocabularies because they may be wildly, wildly different from us. But, you know, we're only capable of kind of knowing what we know. Uh, and with that, let me introduce our first guest uh, here today. Uh, very excited to have Kate Dorsch, a historian, philosopher of science, and the associate director of the Philosophy, Politics, and Economics program at the University of Pennsylvania, her dissertation also much talked about about dissertation, explored the history uh, of the scientific study of UFOs. Amanda Reese is back with us, a historian of science based at the University of York, who works on the history of the future. Uh, she is uh, the author of the book Human. So, Amanda, I'm going to have you kind of get us going, just sort of say that obviously, you know, there's a way in which, and Kate will talk about this in a second, that our contemporary conversation about UFOs and, and space aliens probably kind of starts somewhere around 1947, not insignificantly right after World War II. But there's also a way in which this conversation uh, about the alien, about the strange, about the question of whether or not we are, as they say, alone, is a much, much older one. And Amanda, maybe you can say uh, something about that. Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, one of the things that's so striking about aliens and the way in which aliens operate in our consciousness is the extent to which the history of science is, is just permeated by the understanding of aliens and by the apprehension and the expectation of aliens. You can go basically, you know, the Pythagoreans, the ancient Greeks, the Stoics, for both of those kind of really important ancient Greek philosophies, the concept of extraterrestrial intelligence was absolutely integral to the way in which they understood the universe. Um, they believed in the plurality of worlds. They believed in an infinite universe and the principle of plenitude, what can exist must exist. Those two key themes, the plurality of worlds and the principle of plenitude, basically say that, you know, there's, there have to be other worlds out there. There have to be other worlds out there. And if intelligent, if life exists on this world, then it must exist in other worlds as well. That only really becomes a problem until when Christianity comes along. But I mean, the, the key point, I can give you any number of examples, if you want me to, of, of points, key points at in the history of physics and the history of astronomy, where fundamental debates have turned on the assumption that extraterrestrial life must exist. And that's really, really formed the way in which we've apprehended the universe around us. Tom Paine, for example, was had, had important important things to say about this as well. Really? So, yeah. I don't associate Thomas Paine with, um, with thinking about space aliens. <laughs> well, basically, he used it to, to be as a stick to beat the church with. Um, he's, I'm very fond of Tom Paine at the minute. But essentially, I mean, the belief in the plurality of worlds becomes a problem for Christianity, because you can say on the one hand, you know, God is omnipotent, so God can, can create as many worlds as he wants to. But on the other hand, we're told that Christ came once, that God became incarnate in one place and one time. And Tom Paine absolutely went to town on this in the Age of Reason, where he basically says, so, okay, hang on a minute. God has got millions and millions of worlds to be concerned with. So why is he ignoring all of the other worlds in favor of the one where this woman ate an apple? Right. So basically he's using the, the point is that the 
he's able to use the existence of extraterrestrial life as a means to demonstrate what he perceives to be the limitations of the Christian church. That's how normal believing in extraterrestrials is at that point. Yeah. Oh, boy, I have so many ways I want to follow up on that. But I also <laughs> want to. So we'll, I will try to circle back to that. Uh, but 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 Kate, there's another way in which as I to which I alluded uh, in my initial question to Amanda, there's a way in which if you wanted to understand the last, say, 75 years of uh, of life in the United States and perhaps beyond the United States, you could look at our apprehension of UFOs and who might be inside the UFOs. And it would probably tell you some things that we were worried about in a non-extraterrestrial way. Can you say more about that? Absolutely. Uh, and thanks for opening the door to that conversation. Um, so I sometimes get a lot of grief for coming on these kinds of shows and then saying, right, the UFO is a product of post-World War II Cold War anxiety, right? Techno-scientific anxiety, because people will point back to these conversations, right? Like Giordano Bruno or Tom Paine, um, the Indian case, the South American examples, et cetera, and say, well, people have been seeing flying saucers forever. Um, and there is a version of that that is true, right? Humans have been seeing things in the sky for all, as long as we have written human history. My argument is that we can't understand those things as UFOs or flying saucers in the way we think about them here and now today in this conversation. The flying saucer as a piece of technology, right, as, a, as an aerial vehicle of some kind that represents some kind of deeply advanced technology and scientific understanding of the universe is a very post-World War II, techno-scientific, nuclear anxiety, futuristic object, right, that speaks very directly to the concerns of that post-war era, that science and technology have advanced so much faster than we were able to even imagine, let alone understand, the UFO becomes a proxy for this sort of thing. The fact that aliens become involved is, is almost sort of a footnote to those early years, 47, 48, 49. The groundwork assumption, especially in the U.S. military, is that they're Russian, that they are Soviet technology, not that they're aliens or anything else. Um, and these craft really capture that early early 50s, late 40s, early 50s, into the mid-60s concerns about the existential threat of our techno-scientific advancement in the mid-20th century. Yeah, and some of the thinking about um, space aliens uh, kind of evolves in that way, too. In the 50s, you correct me when you think I'm way off base, but it seems like in the 50s, some of the so-called flying saucer cults and stuff like that, they, they actually are looking maybe at space aliens as these highly in evolved and probably kind of better than us. A uh, group of uh, uh, of beings who, in some cases, you see the ideas that they're actually worried about our develop of development of nuclear capacity, you know, and they want to do something about it, or they know the world's going to end, so they're going to take some of us up in sp uh, flying saucers and go racing off with us and take us to a much better place. And then in the '60s, the late '60s, you start to get that kind of idea. No, maybe they're abducting us and probing us and poking at us. Yeah. Uh, and and then in the '90s, maybe you get this sort of you know the rise of the X files and this kind of idea that everything that's wrong with government post Watergate and, and everything that's suspicious about government post Reagan, you know, is in fact the product of some kind of cabal uh, of rich, influential, politically connected people who are suppressing really important information uh, about space aliens. You can sort of see some of the iterations of our own feelings about our society emanate yeah. from some of these scenarios. Yeah, I would say that that is at least... 
mostly accurate. Well, the sort of correction to that I would offer is that all of those sentiments are always there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The sort of deep state cabal machinations piece is there in the 50s. Um, it is apparent in Captain Ed Ruppelt. He's the first director of Project Blue Book, 52 to 55. He writes this text, the report on unidentified flying objects, which is supposed to be a tell-all expose about the early days of Project Blue Book and all of the ways in which the project is bad and wrong and, and deficient, right? Which he blames largely on incompetency and lack of interest from the higher-ups in the Air Force, right? That they are they are purposefully trying to obfuscate this issue and so on and so forth, right? So that sort of mistrust government cover-up piece is always there. Um, The concern about aliens coming to take us away, it is true that in the 50s and 60s, it's sort of less less abduction-y, although the Barney and Betty Hill case stands out as an obvious um, outlier to that. Quite frequently, especially in the 50s, you get these stories um, of extraterrestrial life which is often quite surprisingly human looking yes like biologically superior versions of us you can see how sometimes this wanders into some sort of like white supremacist neo-nazi spaces and so on Uh, but they're coming to take us away right to their perfect paradise they're going to take the best versions of us and take them for breeding or whatever else Um, but then you also have examples like the day the earth stood still Right, where a UFO has been sent to Earth to save us from destroying ourselves or potentially destroy us if we don't have the capacity to overcome our own sort of human flaws and the way we fight with each other and so on. Um, so you do have all of these sort of pieces inside of this giant UFO lore. It's yeah. The question is more sort of what elements of that are dominant in any given decade. And these things do break up by decade pretty easily yeah. as well, which is which is clever. Think, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think Kate's exactly right on that. The one thing I'd like to add into that mix about the 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 the, the, the kind of the nature of the fears and the mix of the fears and the kind of the the kind of melting pot of the fears that are there is I'd want to stick in the kind of the imperialism, the colonialism, and the racial element there too as well. Yes, you've got to remember, of course, you've got you know War of the Worlds, that the classic kind of um, alien invasion story, H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds begins from Herbert George Wells's apprehension of what the European has done to the Tasmanian. That is to say that the, that the Tasmanian has been exterminated because of the superior technology of the European. And War of the Worlds begins when H.G. Wells starts to imagine, well, what would happen if, you know, another race, another superior quote-unquote race came along that could do to us what we've done to the rest of the world. And if you look at science fiction, if you look at the cultural apprehension and the cultural appropriation of aliens throughout the 20th century, you can see that as another key element there, the fear that aliens can do to us, that is white Europeans, what white Europeans have done to the rest of the world. And that's why aliens are so scary. And that's why we react to them so strongly. Or that's one of the reasons why we react to them so strongly. Amanda, I'd also like to just talk about this more, a little bit at the level of ontology and a little bit, uh, well, I mean, for example, um, this is all so dependent on the notion of a we, who are we. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, as your book points out, uh, when we say we, we don't mean Lucy or Turkana Boy or Nutcracker Man or yeah. The Hobbit or the Neanderthals or the Cro-Magnons. The Hobbit, by the way, is a kind of... Uh, uh, hominid skeleton. Uh, but we're not thinking about, uh, we have this idea that there's a definable we, and we are the ones who are going to encounter these beings from outer space. And then there's this kind of steady erosion and shaking up of the idea of we. Copernicus kind of tells us we're not at the center of the universe. Uh-huh. Darwin d- tells us we are not 
completely set apart from the rest of nature. We're just a product of a progression that exists within nature. Freud tells us maybe the universe had good taste in not making us the center of the universe. <laughs> um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that, too. Like all of our anxieties about what it means to be human, to evoke a title, uh, seem to be embedded somewhat in how we start thinking about who's going to come visit us. Yeah, and it goes back exactly to the point that Kate made so eloquently about the fact that UFOs are a product of that particular techno, the particular techno scientific culture that we live in. We often means European white males, mm -hmm. and that's close, incredibly closely tied to the history of science and the impact that science and technology has had both on our societies and on the rest of the world. If you look, I mean, one of the things that we explore in the book, which is basically, it's an exploration essentially about how we define and understand human. And the category of alien is so incredibly important to that, not just in terms of aliens visiting from outer space, but with the theme with which we began, I'm an alien, I'm a legal alien. And we worry so much about illegal aliens these days. We worry so much that we build walls and cages to keep the aliens out and to hold the aliens in. And the ability to define something or someone as an alien often means, well, essentially what it means is you can deny their humanity. Back to H.G. Wells and the capacity of the alien European to destroy the Tasmanian. So, I mean, it's, 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 it, is, it is who we are is absolutely fundamental to understanding how we apprehend the other. The alien is, in a sense, then the, the, the ultimate other, ontologically speaking. It's the category that is not us, that is scary, that is out there, that is either going to defeat us or be defeated by us. And that kind of Darwinian notion of survival of the fittest, fight or be defeated, I mean, people, your audience is probably familiar with um, the, the, the three-body problem, um, the series of novels produced um, by the Chinese author. Oh, gosh, and I've forgotten his name. Kate, help me out here. Um, I can't come up with help. his name either, but... Uh, uh, um, Lou, is that his last name? Yeah, that's, that's it. That's right, it. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> that moment of complete mental wiper, where essentially what he's doing in that novel is exploring is exploring kind of alien invasions in the context of the contact that China has with the Western world. And that fear of contact with other cultures, do you embrace contact with other cultures or do you fight back? Because literally, basically, the, the, you know, the, the fear is of being engulfed, of, of essentially somebody coming along and taking the ability to speak English away from us in the same way that our predecessors took the ability to speak indigenous languages away from the populations that we contacted in the past. Hmm. Um, I think also, Kate, there's a way, and I, I, I'm going to bring up kind of an odd idea, but I listened to another interview with you in which you described yourself as a big nerd. So yeah. I don't feel bad about like throwing <laughs> no, something it's good. at you. Yay, nerds! <laughs> yeah. Yay! <laughs> so there's a way in which, you know, thinking about aliens, thinking about space aliens, uh, allows us to think, as I was saying before to Amanda, you know, uh, of ourselves as kind of a stable unit, right? We're, we're sort of the same. We are a, a noticeable species. Uh, everything else is sort of different. And and that, I think, allows a lot of things to go unexamined. I mean, I mean, one real nerdy thing to think about is, well, what if this is, what if the simulation hypothesis is real? What if we're actually living in a simulation right now? And, and we're not really all that stable. We're some kind of, pro, we're programmed by some super intelligent uh, entity. Would actually explain a lot about why UFOs don't make that much sense, right? Like, why do they have lights on them and windows and stuff like that? Right. Um, you know, uh, or what if we are not a species but an iteration? We're in the process of becoming more and more, quote unquote, transhuman. We might be non-biological in a thousand years. Um, you know, there's sort of a way in which we don't think about any of that because we just assume that whatever we are in 2022, that's what a human being is. 
Well, yes, unless you read Dan Simmons' Hyperion or the last book of Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy or anything like that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that there is a sort of, you know, all of this depends on, an, an, an since we're talking ontology, on an ontologically stable idea of what it means to be human. Um, that I think is, you know, at least as far as academics are concerned, like we are, we are sort of working to destabilize through our conversations about, right, like animal lives, for example. Do plants have rights? Yeah. Does the earth have rights uh, that are distinct and apart from ours? Um, ironically, some of these same questions that like many early sort of pre like Christian and pre-Christian thinkers were asking about, right, if there is life on other worlds, is that life also saved, yeah. right? Or does it have its own version of Christ or has God created a sort of species that is just you know, lost. Um, I think these questions do still sort of underpin our conversations about aliens and our concerns about them and, and these sorts of ideas that perhaps they're coming to visit us now, right? Um, are they here to help or save us? What do they look like, right? There's that other, um, it's a rival, but it's a way better short story, story of your life. Um, that's about, right, getting into these questions about linguistics and how your language shapes the world. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think yeah. the aliens also, just become a really great space to sort of question our underlying assumptions about like what our values are and, and sort of what makes us people. Yeah, but with the, the I'm really glad you brought up the stories of your life, the Ted Chang's short story mm -hmm. on which the film um, Arrival was based, because one of the, I mean that ties straight back to the point that you were making, Kate, about the more than human and how we understand aliens and other species in the context of the more than human. There's another short story by Ted Chang which is set in and around the Arecibo Observatory, from which messages have been sent out, you know, to contact alien species and to, you know sending out radio messages basically to see is there anybody out there? Can we talk? To the people out there and the story is set is written from the point of view of this endangered kind of species of parrots which live around the observatory and the parrots are asking in the stories why why are the humans spending so much effort to contact other species we're right here we are right here we can talk and the parrots use um, the endangered parrots use the kind of the lines from Alex the Grey Parrot, who is a very famous figure um, in cross species interspecies communication, the history of interspecies communication, where his dying words to his um, to Irene Pepperberg, who worked with him, were, "You be good, good night, I love you." That's the end of the story, and it's a really, really powerful evocation of what the the what certain categories of human considered to be appropriate intelligences, quote unquote, to be communicating with. Sorry, I went slightly sideways there. Do no, it's no, no, okay. That was good. That was good. If I can jump in and offer yeah, yeah, yeah. perhaps yeah. the example that most of the audience will know, the, yeah. the sort of best tool of thinking about this is the Star, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Yes. Otherwise yes, known yes, as the yes. whale one, yeah. right? The best Where one, like, the, best the drone one. has come to talk to the whales. It is largely uninterested in humans, yes. yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and the idea that, you know, humans, it's sort of hubris that makes us think about that like we are the object of this interest at all. Right. And we also want to look up to the stars for strangeness. I think this is a point Paul Davies makes. Somebody makes it that there are these extremophiles, you know, living by ocean vents at temperatures that something can't possibly be alive at, except that they are. There's sort of a lot going on in our own planet that's wholly unexamined while we focus on, you know, these these things coming from other places. Hey, time is a little bit short, but but Kate, one thing I do want to sort of talk just briefly about anyway is when you begin to look at people who think a lot about space aliens and UFOs, I mean, that's its own field of study, too. If you were now here, I'm going to name drop and I apologize. But 
I, I have actually met in my life Betty Hill, although she was Betty Andreessen uh, at the wow. time. Uh, and it was at a MUFON conference uh, in somewhere in the early 1980s. Uh, and um, and she showed up. I think she was kind of uninvited. Uh, I think J. Allen Hynek, who was a scientist who'd gotten involved in uh, in the UFO movement and had all kinds of different takes that kind of kept changing. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. but but you know, I think he was there and he might have even been running things at the time. And she showed up and she actually had a statue that she or somebody had made, a sculpture uh, of the beings that had probed her or examined her or done whatever. And people were freaking out at MUFON because that's not where they were at that moment, right? They were uh, much more sort of tech and scientific oriented yeah. in that iteration. I just got through watching the Showtime uh, thing about UFOs where there's a, another MUFON guy named Carrion who has a whole completely different theory about what's going on here. But there's a way in which Kate, these, these groups aren't necessarily stable in their thinking either. There's a lot of changes that are probably the result of all kinds of outside pressures. Yeah, that is completely accurate. One of the things that I discovered very early on in my research is that even inside, it's very difficult to talk about the UFO community, right? Because even inside of that group, there are so many layers and iterations. For example, throughout the 20th century, you had the professional scientists, experts, PhDs, etc., who were working on some of these questions for the government or otherwise, asking, like, we just have to identify this thing that people saw, right? And we're not quite sure what it is. It's probably astronomical or atmospheric phenomena. Fine. Underneath them, and they have derision for, let's say, the, the flying saucer people, the UFO people, who believe that what they are seeing is some sort of advanced aerial vehicle technology, et cetera. That top layer of UFO people don't necessarily think that these things are extraterrestrial. They have space in their theory that these things are terrestrial, that they are Soviet, that they're American, that they're coming from somewhere else, right? That group sees themselves as distinct from the flying saucer people who think that they're coming from farther away, who then see themselves distinct from the alien abduction people, right? So the Hills get a lot of grief very early on from the UFO community who sees them being so public with their story is delegitimizing everything the UFO community is trying to accomplish by advocating for quote unquote scientific studies. They see this abduction narrative as totally unscientific. All right, These communities have gone through so many changes over the decades and continue to based on sometimes really local factors. Who's in charge? Who's paying dues? Who's publishing their publications? Who's the voice of the movement? And and so on. Yeah, and, and, and who had a bestseller, too. Um, right, and Hynek was the king of ufology, right? He got right. involved in 1947 or 1948 and stayed sort of the father of ufology until he died in the early 80s. Um, and him being a PhD astronomer with a prestigious appointment at Northwestern yes. did a lot yes. to legitimize the movement. We're um, going to have to pause there. I, yeah, and course, I, apologize, I apologize for this. Uh, Kate Dorsch, historian, philosopher of science, associate director of the Philo Philosophy, Politics, and Economics program at UPenn. Amanda Reese, historian of science based at the University of York, who works on the history of the future. She's the author of the book Human. Uh, Amanda, there's enough in this book uh, that uh, we can have two or three more visits with you, <laughs> and I look forward to those. We're going to take a break. Our senior producer, Lily Tyson, is especially worried about this whole thing of sending Stephen Colbert's DNA and, and Beatles songs and Dorito commercials, uh, which these are all actually things that have been sent out into space as some kind of messaging. Is that a good idea? Do we want to put the welcome mat out before we know who's stepping on it?
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. So uh, with quite a bit of regularity over the recent decades, we've been sending stuff out into space, messages out into space, invitations out into space. Well, we've sent things like a 15-minute concert performed on a theremin, a version of Across the Universe, plus a message from Paul McCartney, send my love to the aliens, uh, an invitation in Klingon to attend a performance on Earth of a Klingon opera, a video compilation of Romanian gymnasts from 06, an advertisement for Doritos, the DNA of Stephen Colbert encoded on a microchip. Uh, I could go on and on. Lately, it's a drawing of a hydrogen atom, a map of the Earth, a visual representation of DNA's double helix structure. Uh, and, uh, and these are sort of things actually are, that are now uh, proposed to be sent out as binary coded messages, including, I believe, pictures of naked human beings. Um, so the question might arise, and it has arisen in the mind of our senior producer, Lily Tyson. Is this a good idea? Here to explore that question with us, Seth Shostak, a senior astronomer at the SETI Institute, author of Confessions of an Alien Hunter, a scientist's search for extraterrestrial intelligence, among other books, and host of the radio show and podcast, Big Picture Science. Welcome to our conversation. Thank you very much, Colin. So let's just begin with the bare bones of that question. I mean, it sort of makes sense to say, hey, here we are. Are you, is there anybody out there? But it's, it gets a little bit more complicated when you start thinking about what it is that we're saying. I mean, explore this a little bit for us. Well, to begin with, I don't think it matters terribly much what we say. Uh, to me, that, that smacks of uh, Captain Cook sailing the South Pacific in the late 18th century. And, you know, he comes uh, into the cove of some island and he finds the locals. Does it really matter what they say to him? I don't think it matters. But uh, in any case, all these messages that you've talked about, whether they're, you know, bolted onto the sides of spacecraft, like the Pioneer plaque or the Voyager record, you know, those to begin with will probably never, ever be found. But in addition to that, you know, they pale in comparison to the uh, messages we're sending out every day, 24 hours a day via television. Right. They can they can find out whatever they want uh, about us if they can find out anything would be that argument. So let's talk about the likelihood that anything like that is going to happen. You have a bet uh, going that involves buying coffee for people. Explain what that bet is. Yes. Well, I, I think it's a bet that I regret, actually. <laughs> but it, it was uh, it was it, it came about because I was giving a talk in Germany about uh, the work of the SETI Institute. The audience's eyeballs were glazing over like Krispy creams. So I felt that I had to do something to wake them up. And I <laughs> said, I bet all of you that uh, we will find a message from ET or we will find a signal from ET within two dozen years. 
And, uh, you know, that has developed a life of its own. And I am now buying Starbucks stock. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know that you can actually hedge your bets successfully that way. I don't th- know that it works that way. But but who knows? You might be right about that. So um. So yeah. Well, I mean, in a way, there's sort of two questions. Then you know, I mean, are we more likely to get a message from ET, or is ET more likely to get uh, a message from us, or is there no way to intelligently evaluate that question? Well, you can say the following. I mean, obviously. For them to get a message from us, we would have to send a message and we'd have to wait for the time it takes for the message to get to them. I mean, if they're 100 light years away, you've got to wait a century before they could have picked up the message. And if they deign to reply, another 100 years before you get a response. So, you know, that's a long wait. Whereas if you say, look, you know, we're new to radio. This is a technology we've had for 100 years, something like that. If you say that, then, well, okay. There could be societies out there that are literally millions or billions of years more advanced than ours. Maybe they've been broadcasting all this time for whatever reason. And let's just pick up that signal tonight instead of waiting a couple of hundred years. Yeah. So I mean, I, and then that kind of raises the question, what are we in it for? Um, I mean, to the extent that we're involved uh, in, in SETI, um, what are we in it for? Are we in it because we actually think we could have a fruitful exchange with a, a being or culture or civilization uh, thousands and thousands of, of light years away? Are we in it because we just want to know, because that's what science is, science is just wanting to know? Can you talk a little bit about well, maybe your motivation in particular? Yeah, I think it's more the latter than the former. Uh, I, I think it's simply that we would like to know. I mean, it's like saying, well, doggone it, uh, we discovered a continent here that uh, we didn't know about as a European, say Africa, for example, or Australia. I mean, you would want to know what's there, right? I mean, it's just curiosity. And that's what drives what's called basic research. And uh, I think that this is a sort of a form of basic research to try and find a signal that would tell us somebody's out there. It's just knowing things. And it turns out that that's the most fruitful uh, avenue of research that science does. So I think that there's a long history of that curiosity, if you will. So we want to know whether we could ever understand what they're saying or get into some sort of dialogue. I mean, that's a little dicey because, after all, you know, I don't know that if the trilobites had had an experiment, they could have talked to humans very uh, fruitfully for them from their point of view. But you know, it's a possibility that uh, we would learn something from the exchange. Well, I mean, the other possibility and the other one of the other outcomes of curiosity, I'm trying to remember what Oppenheimer says at the atomic test, something like what what hath man wrought or something like that. And and Hawking said kind of the same thing about this kind of curiosity. You and your curiosity, uh, you've got to go poking around out there in places where things may live that you don't know anything about. I mean, there there is an argument coming from great minds like Stephen Hawking and Lily Tyson that say, you know, don't do this. It's just an invitation for trouble. Well, I can't speak to Lily's uh, uh, motivation here, but I will say that, you know, Stephen Hawking did make an offhand comment about lesser societies encountering more advanced societies, not always good. And so that's certainly true. That's simply historical. And it's based, by the way, on human experience. Uh, You know, the aliens may have a different point of view, but whatever. Right. That's that's certainly true. But if you're going to worry about that, if you say, look, let's not send any interrogatories, if you will, uh, to the sky. Let's not point any powerful transmitters at the sky. Then you better start shutting down all the radars at your local airport because they're broadcasting 24-7. So, 
you know, I mean, if they're hostile aliens out there, they may, might pick up, uh, you know, LaGuardia's airport and decide to uh, flatten our planet, which would be a trick. <laughs> yeah, no, they may show up and say, you know, Lost should have ended after four seasons. You know, it would have been so much better if they didn't do the fifth season. Uh, you know, they may be watching our culture all the time and coming up with uh, opinions about it. But I'd also like to know, you know, how fast is the science and the technology changing? In other words, in terms of searching uh, or reaching out, uh, how much better and faster are we getting at that stuff? Yeah, well, 99% of all SETI work is listening. It's not broadcasting. We don't broadcast. We don't even have transmitters to broadcast. We leave that to, you know, Connecticut Public Radio. Let them broadcast. Right? That's going off into space. You could ask yourself, what's the consequence of that or the potential consequence of that? But, you know, listening is, is, is something that it, it might pay off tonight. That's the big advantage of it. And uh, as far as, you know, what we would learn, I mean, suppose we were to pick up a signal tomorrow. What would that tell us? It would tell us that life and intelligence are not some sort of miracle that only happened on this planet, but it's, you know, it's likely to be all over the universe. So that that's an interesting thing to learn. So let's imagine for a moment, because it's not a far-fetched comparison, I don't think, uh, that you are the Jodie Foster character in Contact. So you're one of the people that call. So you get the call. They, they call you up. They say, Seth, it's finally happening. It's, you know, we're finally getting the signal that we've been listening for. We've picked up something that really appears to be significant and real. I know, how are you going to feel that day? I mean, excited, scared, all of the above? Yeah, well, of course, uh, it's a mix of things. And, and I can speak to this simply because we've had what you might call false alarms. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what they were, false alarms, right? Where you pick up a signal and for the, you know, in the course of a day, you might still believe that this signal is actually what you're looking for, a signal from another society on another planet around another star. Okay. And we've had that happen. Not often, but we did have that happen. In fact, uh, in 1997, there was a signal like that. And, you know, my reaction, I think it was not so different from others, was that I was very nervous. Suddenly, everything I had on my agenda for the next week, well, for the next year and maybe more, was you just wiped from the boards. You had to start over. Suddenly, your life is really shifted, right? It's like, a, I don't know, maybe like Chris Columbus, you know, for, for a month, he just sees water around his ship. And then suddenly, <laughs> there's land. That changes everything. And this would be, I think, more profound than that. Absolutely. No, I mean, I would want to just buy some new clothes or something. I want to look nice when they get here. Uh, Seth Shostak is senior astronomer at the SETI Institute, author of Confessions of an Alien Hunter, the A-Scientist Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, host of the radio show and podcast Big Picture Science. Thanks so much for this conversation. We're going to go from there after this break to a conversation with a linguist. Let's say we do have to start, quote, talking, unquote. How are we going to do that? Time to make some uh, some thank you statements. So the first thank you statement would be uh, to Cat Pastor, our technical producer, doing all this uh, stuff that is required to make us sound good. Lily Tyson is our senior producer, and it turns out she's kind of a UFO worrier, a kind of space alien worrier. We're so glad to know that. We're interested in flaws in Lily's 
character or, or concerns or neuroses that we can exploit. And we haven't really been able to find any until now. So excited about the UFO component here. Uh, flaw would be the wrong word anyway. All right. So they, let's say we have contact. Let's say we, we have some kind of contact with space aliens. What's that going to be like? What's it going to sound like? How are we going to communicate with them? Before I introduce our guest, let's hear, Kat, this is C1, how it sounds in the movie Arrival. First, we need to make sure that they understand what a question is, okay? The nature of a request for information along with the response. Then we need to clarify the difference between a specific you and a collective you, because we don't want to know why Joe Alien is here. We want to know why they all landed. And purpose requires an understanding of intent. We need to find out, do they make conscious choices or is their motivation so instinctive that they don't understand a why question at all? And, and biggest of all, we need to have enough vocabulary with them that we understand their answer. So uh, here to talk about that uh, is uh, probably the person that they based the character of Louise, a.k.a. Amy Adams, on. Sherry Wells Jensen, Associate Professor of English and Linguistics at Bowling Green State University, who's on the board of the directors of METI, METI Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence International. Um, so let's sort of begin kind of where that clip begins. Um, you know, Wittgenstein said, if a lion could talk, we wouldn't understand it. Uh, Thomas Nagel said that we can't possibly know what it's like to be a bat, or at least what it's like for a bat to be a bat. So what are the odds that we would have any possible common way uh, of beginning some kind uh, of information exchange with an extraterrestrial entity? Uh, well, golly, either zero or a lot or somewhere <laughs> in between there. I That's mean, a good answer. Uh, you know, let's just let's just throw darts at it. Um, but I mean, we could I mean, we have to remember that we are just babies here. Right. We just sort of figured out radio. We've just kind of got airplanes. Going. We've been all the way to our moon, which is nowhere, you know in terms of going into outer space. And um, we're not that smart, really. Sorry, but we're just kind of not. And these other civilizations, like Seth said, um, are probably millions of years older than we are. So, um, you know, it's kind of like asking, does the toddler understand what their parents say? I mean, maybe, kind of. It depends on how cooperative the parents are, right? Um, so whether we would be able to understand them or not has a lot to do with whether they speak intergalactic baby talk. <laughs> which I mean, I hope they do. Right. Because if they're, if they're sending a message to us, they know who we are. They know that we're not, you know, super sophisticated. They know how long we've been sort of piddling around with radio. So I think it will depend on how cooperative they feel. If they send us a message, wouldn't they construct the message such that beings like us would understand it? That's, that's what I would do. Well, I mean, the, it also kind of presupposes that we understand each other. We understand ourselves, which is not necessarily true all the time. I mean, for example, you've made the point that in some cultures you don't say to someone who's standing to the left or to the right of somebody, you, you use the points of the compass. So at all times you have to know the points of the compass uh, relative to where you're standing. I mean, that would be something that I would have a lot of trouble doing with whoever it is from the culture who does things that way. Fair. And we are tragically bad at understanding one another. We can't even consistently be nice to one another non-verbally. We're not, I mean, we really are at the toddler stage. We're not very good at sharing. We're not very good with our toys. We want to keep it all for ourselves. We want to protect our stuff. So, um, 
Yeah, we crashingly fail to understand ourselves, each other, even when we're speaking the same language. I mean, just think about the last time you had a big stupid fight with someone that you actually love very much. And we have all these big stupid fights all the time. So, I mean, I think it's reasonable to set our expectations somewhat low. Right. And and also language, even a given language is internally evolving all the time. I mean, we've had conversations on this show about whether it's somehow or other aggressive or passive aggressive to put a period at the end of a text that you mm. send to somebody on your phone. It's kind of that, A, nuanced, and B, incredibly fuzzy. I mean, there's a way in which a certain amount of humility about our communication skills seems, as you suggest, appropriate. Right. We'd have to offer each other a lot of grace, just like we, <laughs> it, it, the, the, the intra-species grace is hard to come by, but we do have it, right? We do have the capacity to be kind to one another and say, oh, wait, hang on. No, 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 no. It's not what I meant. I'm really sorry. Let's start over. Um, you know, just recently I had an argument with someone. I said, hey, wait a minute. Let's just start this conversation over from the beginning because we've both made some mistakes. Here. Let's go back. Um, so we have that capacity. Um, so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm simultaneously radically hopeful and profoundly pessimistic. Yeah, my concern is that we're going to try to explain to them something like, we're friends. I want to be your friends. Here's what friends do. We want to be friends with you. Uh, so just think of each other as friends. Uh, and then they're going to like scan our databases in our culture. Uh, and Kat, this is C2. <laughs> they're going to run across this. Okay. Do you want to play rough? Okay. Oh, no. Say hello to my little friend. And they're going to say, wait a second. <laughs> but but we use words, ironically, we use words uh, with double meanings and stuff like that. So that's an argument for starting someplace else. I mean, in Close Encounters, it starts with, you know, a five-tone music sequence. Give her six quavers, then pause. She sent us four quavers, a group of five quavers, a group of four semi-quavers. The only thing these phrases have in common are five signals. I hope somebody's taking all this down. Yeah. What are we saying to each other? It seems they're trying to teach us a basic tonal vocabulary. It's the first day of school, fellas. So, is it your guess that our, our starting base... I mean, it might be on them to figure out how to start talking to us if we're way stupider than they are. But is it likely to be sort of something other than words? Could be something other than words. And that makes sense. I mean, our first contact is likely to be just a radio signal that sounds that is clearly artificial. And so the only information we'll have about them is that they exist and they're intelligent. And that should be enough to blow all minds on the planet right there. That's that's big. Um, and then from there. You know, if we are the toddlers and they are the grown-ups, uh, you know, they will understand what we're like. We're probably not their first contact, right? It's first contact for us. We're all excited. Wah! But for them, it's like, okay, there's another one. Probably a type four. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, implement contact protocol number 562. Okay, there you go. Um, so they, they probably got this. Right. So... I mean, another way to think about this, and it kind of came up in the first segment of the show, is that, um, you know, we're only so-so at understanding the communications of 
non-human animals around us. Uh, we're kind of good at teaching gorillas sign language and maybe getting parrots to say certain things, but uh, we might be better at that than we are at really kind of listening to what they naturally say. Would that be a place to kind of concentrate some of our efforts pre-exposure to aliens? Absolutely. We've got all kinds of test subjects here on Earth. Unfortunately, as far as we know, gorillas and dolphins don't have much technology, right? They've got some, the gorillas have some tool, some tool use, um, but we can't say, hey, how about that radio telescope and start comparing our science, which we could do with the aliens, right? We, we do know that they should know what hydrogen is, what helium is, for example. Um, so, so the practical reason to start preparing for alien contact is that we'd be more prepared for alien contact. The more practical reason to start preparing for it is it is a really good reason and a really good mechanism through which to study more of what the heck's going on here that we don't understand yet. Um, like, can we, can we learn what's happening right here? Can we learn what language is? Can we learn what thought is? Can we learn uh, how to communicate between the species that are right here? And can we please, you know, not destroy the planet so that we have time to learn these things? Right. I, I feel like I just have to say, because otherwise I'll get emails uh, from Douglas Adams fans that, you know, he points out that you know, human beings think they're superior to dolphins because human beings have invented things like New York City and Southwest Airlines and things like that. And you know, dolphins are just frolicking around in the water the whole time. And the dolphins think the opposite for the exact same reason. <laughs> like Everything that we think of as a great accomplishment that maybe they look at it and think, you know, I wouldn't do that. That's just like just a, that's no fun at all. I'd rather be swimming and eating fish. Yeah. Uh, Sure, me too. So, so I guess with the time that remains, I guess I wonder what would be you. I mean, we should say you think about this a lot. You've spoken a lot about it. Uh, sometime in the next twenty years, the signal may come. You know, I just asked Seth what he would be feeling at that time. I guess I'd like to know what you'd be thinking at that time. Like, what would you want to do if they crook their fingers at you and say, hey, get over here. You're the one who really thinks about this a lot. What are we supposed to do right now? What What's maybe your first one or two questions? We only have about a minute and a half left, though. Well, OK, first, the first there's the five minutes of ceaseless screaming. And then there's just <laughs> I just think I want to listen more than I want to talk. Right? I yeah. just want to know what would their first thing be that they would want to say to me? That's what I want to know. Um, because I don't know what to say to them. I know nothing about them, um, but they would probably know more about us than we know about them. So what do they want to say to us? That's what I want to know. Yeah. Of course, what if they're saying, you better make a duck noise right now or we're sending an enormous <laughs> cosmic hammer down to crush you? Then I'm quacking like a duck. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> right. But you have to know that that's what they're asking you. All right. Unfortunately, we have to stop there. Sherry Wells Jensen, uh, Associate Professor of English and Linguistics at Bowling Green State University on the board of the directors of the Messaging Extraterrestrial Intelligence International. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for listening to this show, too. And thanks, Lily Tyson, to, for revealing all of your neuroses uh, about UFOs and space aliens. We will be using them against you at our earliest opportunity. Extra, 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 extra.